Uh, our service this evening is at 6 p.m., and we're delighted to have Jack with us again this evening. So Jack will be bringing the word tonight at 6 p.m. Also, our Bible study on Tuesday night at 8 p.m. on Zoom. Also, the Lord's Supper will be the first Sunday of October. So please keep those dates in mind. Let's continue now in uh, in uh, the Red Psalter, in number 57, Psalm 57. And let's sing at verse 5 down to the end. Verse 5, the end. Above the highest heavens, O God, exalted be, and over all the earth below, display your majesty. Verses 5 to the end. Let's see. Above the highest heavens, O God, exalted be, and over Again and again and again. 
that their, their different sins and practices are a reflection of their hypocrisy. They claim to be one thing outwardly, but inside they are something different. And Jesus uses some of the, the strongest language he ever uses in his whole ministry here in, in this chapter. It's hard hitting. It's hard hitting. But we also have to remember um, that it is coming from a place of love. You look at that command, the uh, question that they put to Jesus, uh, we looked at a few weeks ago. What is the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we saw that the law of God was a reflection of God's love. And uh, that, that law was not meant to be seen as uh, a harsh restriction Reflective of a, a vengeful, uh, your God, um, but a reflection of God's heart of love. This is what love looks like. And we sometimes misinterpret chapters like the one we're looking at here this morning in the same way as we do the law of God. Paul says the, that love is a fulfilling of the law. We also come with the same idea when it comes to this chapter. It's very hard thing. It's very hard to read. It's very hard to work through, and especially when we realize that Jesus ultimately was not talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, but he was really uh, describing the human condition. And again, the, the spirit of this is not one of vengeance. He's not coming at it from a spirit of uh, hatefulness or out of sheer wrath. We see that in the way in which Jesus ends the chapter. And right now, I just want us to jump to the end and, and, and see this, the heart from which these things are coming out of Jesus. You say, how can he who was the embodiment of God's love say such things. And it is indeed coming out of the same place that everything else comes out of. A heart of love. And the final paragraph of this chapter really ought to color for us the spirit in which everything else that precedes it is understood. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, not killed in the past, but kills the prophets, even up to this present day. And they are going to kill the great prophet. They're going to kill, put to death, this Son of God, the Messiah, on the cross. And stone those who are sent to how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Jesus, out of a heart of love, is lamenting the hardness and the self-deception of the people to whom he is speaking. And yet he is laying there a heart of reconciliation. 
these are shocking statements in a way that Jesus made. We read them and we're shocked by them. We also ought to be shocked by the sheer grace of Jesus in these words that, that are now lenses through which we receive these woes and admonitions. That the, pro, that the city that is currently killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to her, it is that city that he would have received like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. We need again and again to be shocked by the grace of God. These are shocking statements. And it ought to take away any possible excuse that we might have of not coming to God, not coming to God through Jesus because we feel our sins are too great or our past it, it, it cannot be uh, forgiven. We come to statements like this and say, will this Savior turn me away when he pleads with a city that is killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent and would have readily forgiven them. It is that way in which we begin to embark on this study of what Jesus is saying here in these words of woe, in laying bare their heart and our hearts not out of a sense of leaving us in a place of devastation and condemnation, but with the hope of seeing the absolute need that we have of the person who's speaking, and to run to him, and to feel utter despair at our ability to save ourselves. That's what Jesus is getting at. That was the purpose of the law, to drive the people. Paul said the law was added to increase the trespass, to stir up in the, sense, in the minds of people how they needed God, how they needed Christ. Jesus is addressing this idea that spiritual deception is a a real thing, not only for the people of his uh, day, but down through the centuries. As, you, as we read through this chapter, we, we can think of times in church history where these things have been repeated again and again and again. And that in good churches, many of these, the, the spirit has crept and destroyed that church and brought it down to its very foundations. And so, uh, uh, for, for those who are uh, truly wanting to uh, to know God through Christ, we are called to deal honestly and openly with these things. The uh, warnings that he gets into in the second part of this chapter, the woes, many people have seen a parable, and there are seven woes that he's talking about here, that are parallel to 
seven uh, uh, blessings in the early part of Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He is saying, You are in a state of blessedness if this is how you are. And he is saying to these tribes and Pharisees that they are under, they're in a state of condemnation if this is how what they, what they are like and how they want to persist. And again, the idea is not that Jesus might seal their faith ultimately, but that through the preaching of the word, many may be won. I think it was MacArthur who famously said that the hard preaching makes the soft hearts. And soft preaching makes hard hearts. And that is very true. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. And it's all coming out of his heart of love. He wants to reach them. And But for people who are deceived, people who uh, are, are so hardened as these are, he pulls out all the stops. He uses very, very strong language. There were others that needed hardly any convincing. They knew where they were. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the people that the, the people who were marginalized in society. Jesus does not use hard words on them. They, they, they are flocking to him. They are falling down at his feet. They are drinking in what he is saying. But here, uh, Jesus uses these very hard words because he knows that the audience that is before them, before him, is uh, themselves hardened. They need convincing. And he uses very strong language. And so this, this was the case in some places. We find people in leadership, in the Pharisees, who did ultimately come to Christ. We can think of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, to whom Jesus famously said he must be born again. We can think of Joseph of Arimathea, uh, one of the ruling leaders in Jerusalem. These were men with whom Jesus did not pull punches, but they ultimately came to a knowledge of the truth. And so, this is uh, no doubt Jesus' desire here. He also, I think, wants us to benefit by their example. Because as I said, these things have crept into the church over the years. And that the whole idea of outward respectability has meant more than the matters of the heart, which to God are the most important thing. He begins, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and practice what uh, and so practice and observe whatever they tell you. In other words, these were learned men. To a large extent, they knew the scriptures. And what Jesus is saying there is that insofar as they are consistent with the word of God, listen to them. But not what they do, for they preach what they do not practice. This is a particular importance to those who do preach, people like myself, or 
people in the homes, fathers and mothers, people who have the teaching ministry uh, within the church, that by God's grace we are seeking to live up to the things that we say. That's not always the case. But neither does it excuse people. You don't have the right to say, well, because pastor is not doing exactly what the word does, then I'm off the hook. You often find that the hockey coaches in the NHL, you know, they might be 60-ish or whatever, and gotten into a hot belly, and they're not very good skaters anymore. But they're the ones uh, telling the players, the 23-year-olds, now the 23-year-old doesn't say, well, if you think it's so easy, you come out here and do it. Uh, that's it. There's a, what I'm simply saying is that people, we are not off the hook if the uh, word of God is not being lived up to exactly. If I had to live up exactly to everything that uh, uh, was in the word, I would not appear in this pulpit. Uh, by God's grace, I seek to do that. And your prayers for me ought to be in that regard. That the pastor would have a heart for the word of God, not only to preach it, but to live it. But nevertheless, Jesus is saying that whatever they say, if it's in accordance with the word of God, do what they say. Because ultimately, it's not, it doesn't come down to me. It, it's between you and God. Nevertheless, those who are in positions of leadership ought are, are, are definitely called to a high standard of what, of the way they live, the way they talk, uh, the way that they, they conduct themselves at home, and so on. These are very important things. But Jesus says, do whatever they tell you, but not what they do. They sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they occupy a place of authority. But this, as archaeologists have found, was an actual seat in the synagogue called Moses' seat. And it was from there that people were taught. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to leave them with their fingers. What were they doing? They were adding to the law of God. Remember I used an example a few weeks ago where it talked about the, the commandment, fourth commandment says, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath day. So they got to work and they say, well, how can we really hedge that around so that we're really keeping that commandment? Well, uh, you can't drag a, a chair across the floor unless you make a furrow on the floor, and that's flour. And uh, so uh, we just, they would make up rules for those kinds of things. Silly things. So that serving God and knowing and loving God became incredibly burdensome. It wasn't just the laws that God had given, but it was the hundreds of other laws that they packed in on top of that. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago that there were some uh, 613 laws in the Old Testament that the, the people of Israel were called to keep. And uh, that, that, that's a lot of laws. And they, so they come to Jesus and say, which is the greatest commandment? But these scribes and Pharisees would add to these things and add, put them on people's backs and give them no way in which to help them out in order to keep them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
They do all their deeds to be seen, but there was no love of God in your heart. Jesus could say that to them directly. I know the love of God is not in you. And so they would make gods of themselves. They would uh, do things to be seen of other people. They would receive other people's applause. That's as far as it would go. That's as far as their religion would take them themselves. And if people approved of them, if people applauded them, then that was their reward. And Jesus would say as much. You have your reward in this life. If all you're looking for is a slap on the back and praise from other people, you have your reward. What a difference for his disciples whom he said, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. They do their deeds to be seen by others. And he gives an example. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. What were these things? The phylacteries were uh, little leather boxes that they would wear on their heads. And sometimes you can see even today in uh, uh, Orthodox Jew uh, Jewish sects where they, they will actually wear the box, the leather box on their forehead, where taking literally the command from the Old Testament that the word of God was to be on your head and, on, and, and, and to, to it was putting something in, a, in an outward way that was meant to just internalize, taking it to a, a, a literal uh, length like that. But it was not good enough uh, for them to have a normal little leather box with a piece of scripture inside. They had to make their phylacteries broad. Oh, you've got one that's this size, but I've got one that's this size. Mine's a little bit bigger than yours. And therefore, I'm a little more godly. I, I love the word of God more. I treasure it more than you do. And uh, Jesus is saying that this is simply to be seen of others. The fringe, they make their fringes long. The tassels on their robes. Now all good Jewish uh, men would have that. The tassels on their robe. It reminded them again of God's law. It reminded them to be holy. Uh, and, and so on. But again, if you wanted to be really holy, yours would be a little longer than your friend next door. So he says they make their fringes long. And they love the places of honor and feats at the best, the best seats in the synagogue. And greetings in the marketplaces. And being called rabbi by others. They love that public recognition by people. It that their religion becomes all about that. Loving the places of honor at the feast, so that they're set apart, so that people can set them apart from everybody else at the feast, saying, how important was that to you? They're at the head table. They're at, they're at the, the preeminent place of, of the feast. And they love that, and they drink that in. And the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor in Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And so, what is Jesus saying here? Now these are 
again, strange words in our ears where we say, well, is Jesus forbidding us to call our fathers father? He's not doing that. And Jesus himself was called rabbi by uh, others around him. But Jesus is saying that they should not try to gain authority over one another as teachers and masters. Again, MacArthur says that Christ is forbidding the use of such names as spiritual titles as if they were the source of truth rather than God. In other words, that these men were the source of truth. That these men were the source of blessing. That just as our physical life might come from our physical father, so our spiritual life might come from a spiritual father. But Jesus is saying these blessings, this instruction, this knowledge, this revelation comes from God. And therefore, the titles that we bear ought to be humble. And so, in all of this, Jesus is asking us, as he is putting before these uh, scribes and Pharisees, are we content with having simply the approval of God and not feeding on the applause of men? Where does our life really consist in other words? Does it consist in the praises of man? Or does it consist in the praise of God? He is not a Jew outwardly, says Paul, whose praise comes from men. That's the, what the word Jew meant. It comes from Judah, which means praise. Praise coming from whom? He says, you, Jewish people and leaders, you are content that your praise came from man. But it needs to be that which comes from God. And so he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest ought to be those who are not in it for to be at the head of the table. Not those who are in a prominent place, but those who are going around unnoticed serving one another. That is completely against the way the world is, isn't it? And how hard that is for us to learn lessons like that. Jesus is driving at a spirit within these men who see that their true treasure in life is to be thought well of by those around. And they were using the things of God. This is where the crime comes in. And this is where the crime has come down through church history. They were using the holy things of God, like his word, and his flock, and his church, and leadership, and things like that, to serve their own ends. Jesus could think of nothing more evil among them, and so he preserves these woes for them. Woe unto you, you who are taking the holy things of God, the scriptures, Prayer, the things that God has commanded, and turning them for your own selfish ends. So he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he unpacks what that means later on. As he talks about hell, and as he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, the word humbled here doesn't really... Uh, 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 take in all of what Jesus is intending here. He's going to un 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 unfold for us as the chapter goes on 
what that humbling will look like. And what the humbling will look like for anyone who sees that their life consists in only the applause and praise of people and not what God actually thinks of them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Do you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in? What's going on there? You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves. How come they weren't entering? Because they saw salvation on the basis of what they did. It wasn't on the basis of the grace of God, the mercy of God, where God is highly enthroned and exalted. As we read in, in Micah, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? This is where God was enthroned. His mercy, His grace. Your mercy is in the heavens. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all is within me. Bless His holy name, who forgives all your sins and heals all your iniquities. This is where God is enthroned. They shut the kingdom of heaven against themselves and others by believing and teaching a manner of salvation that is by works. I'm a good mother. I'm a good father. I'm a decent neighbor. I try hard. I do my best. I'm sure if I think I do my best, then God will think I do my best. And we reduce salvation to our efforts. And we easily dispose of any thoughts of uh, of the sin in our lives. We minimize the things in our lives of having any relevance to God. I'm sure that's not a big deal to them. And what they're doing is they're shutting off the kingdom to themselves and to others. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land and make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell. As yourselves. Again, saying in effect the same idea of what he said there in verse 14. Making a, a convert, in other words, to their way of religion, to their way of thinking. And that their, their converts become more zealous than them. A few more rules are added. A more despising of the unwashed masses grows. And they become twice the child of hell. Isn't it interesting that the way that the language that Jesus uses in describing their converts and describing them themselves, that in the end, all that they are and all that their converts are as children of hell, because they're rejecting the way of true salvation. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? This was a way of getting around your obligations. Swearing in a certain way that could let you off the hook down the road. It's like a little child saying, yeah, yeah, that's what I said, but I, my fingers were crossed behind my back. It's a loophole. It allowed them to lie. It allowed them to justify their sin. By saying, I swore by the temple. 
And I didn't swear by the gold. The gold, the more important, Jesus says, it's the temple that makes the gold great. It's the temple that sanctifies it. And so whatever you're swearing by, whatever your oath is, whatever, however you're telling the truth, God will hold you to account. And so Jesus doesn't let them get away with anything. Verse 21, whoever swears by the temple swears by it, and him who dwells in it. In other words, you think you're getting away with swearing by the temple or thinking that it's nothing? But God is in that temple. He has designated that temple. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. That if they say they're going to do something, if they swear an oath to do it, then God does not let them off the hook. And they cannot use these things as loopholes. We saw that a few uh, months ago where the person says he's got some money, but he doesn't want to give it to his parents. He says, this is dedicated to God. Oh, isn't that, doesn't that sound weird? He's dedicated his money to God, which really allowed him to use his money the way he wanted and let him off the hook looking after his parents. And Jesus says, you dishonor the law of God through your duplicity, through being devious and, and, and trying to work out loopholes in your own head. Again, these are all manifestations of uh, evil hearts. They, their hearts were full of lies and deception, not only deceiving themselves, but deceiving others as well. He goes on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tie men from hell and human, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Tithing was commanded in the Old Testament. But the scribes and the Pharisees took it to another level. They went out into their garden, took all their plants. Oh, you do it this way, but we really grasp for that. One for the Lord, nine for me. One for the Lord, nine for me. Now, Jesus was not saying that tithing was bad. In fact, he it's ordered by God in the Old Testament to give a tithe. But they became so focused on it. In fact, he says, not to neglect it. These things you have not, you should not have neglected without doing have done the others as well. Do both. But make sure you have things in their proper perspective. Don't major on minor. And minor on majors. And again, we can get that way. We can satisfy ourselves and say, well, I gave so much to the church. I go to the church on a regular basis. And we satisfy ourselves in these things, but then we say, well, what's my heart like with God throughout the week? What's my business dealings with people? Do I lie to get out of things? Do I uh, mislead people? Do I treat people like they're beneath me? 
Do I care that there's people in my community, in my world, hurting? Is my heart moved by the injustices in the world? But sometimes we, we block those things out. We don't make an effort to find out what is going on around us. And neither do we care sometimes. But we satisfy our things in things like maybe going to church once for an hour on a Sunday. Or writing out a check. Well, that was easy to do. I'm sure God will not so much mind that I don't care about these other things that people get under my skin. And, uh, that's just not the way I am. Some people are like that, and God bless them. You know, we, this is this is what we do, and yet, as much as we try to justify it, it is not right before God. Jesus is saying that they were neglecting the weightier matters of the law. These you ought to have done without neglecting others. You blind guys straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. There's a Two words here. The gnat is comma, and the camel is gamma. So Jesus was kind of making a, a humorous remark here. You're straining out a gnat. You're trying to get rid of the smallest thing, but you're actually swallowing a camel. You're majoring. The, the sin in your heart is there while you're focusing in on something as small as one leaf for the Lord, nine for me. Well, there's injustice all around you. There's hatefulness in your heart. There is a lack of love for your neighbor. He's not disqualifying the ones for the other, but he's saying you ought to have done one as well as the other. Jesus is talking here exactly the way the Old Testament prophets did. Again, Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In fact, in, in so many places, uh, in Isaiah 58, for example, God says, I will not receive your sacrifices. Hmm. Your feast days are an abomination to me. Why? Because there's violence in your land. You don't keep the Lord's day. There's all these injustices going on. You think I want to receive offerings from people who live in such a way. No. They are straining out an out and swallowing the camel. They are majoring in minors and minor in majors. And that is, again, something that we can fall into. Churches can pride themselves in all the little rules that they ought to keep, but fail to look at the world and say, do I love the lost? Or am I simply consumed with crossing all my teeth and dotting all my life? Maybe a lot of rules that I have made up. And churches can do that too. Making all sorts of rules that are not in the Bible at all. That's the freedom that we have. The freedom of conscience. That the church cannot impose upon your conscience something that is not the word of God. And that was important for uh, the framers of our confession to set out because the church had found itself in that position where so much was added to the church. You can't do this, you can't do that. Don't listen to this kind of music. You can't have television, internet, all these sorts of There's lots of places that will still say that. Your hair must be so long. You can't wear earrings. You can't do this. 
and make up all sorts of rules and regulations. And you have to be, a, a, a church ought to speak where the Lord speaks. Now, the Lord is saying to you something about your internet or your television or the clothes you wear or whatever. That is entirely in play as the Lord speaks to us all individually about certain things. But that's not to say that a church has the, and the right to come in and impose things upon a person's conscience. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside, inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may be clean. The next is like it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but uh, within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is, uh, again, different wrapping, same chocolate inside. It's the hypocrisy, it's the self-deception, it's the unrighteousness that people are trying to clothe in an outward appearance. They clean the outside. We can clean ourselves up, go to church, go shopping, go do whatever. We can be well-behaved. We can do all these things without really letting people know uh, what's in our hearts. But the Word comes to us and asks us, what about our hearts? God focuses in on that most particular and at the end of the day that it will be his opinion of our heart that will be most important. Jesus says you justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The writer of Proverbs says keep your heart with all diligence from out of the flows the issues of life. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Somebody say that? Well, if I had been back when Jesus was crucified, and Peter was leaving him, and all the others, I would have stood up. I would have done it. I would have been right there with all these times. And we might have been the first one. And, uh, but this, this is how we just. You know, not only these people were charged with looking down on others, they say, well, How could they be like that? We do it all the time to these people. We look down on the scribes and Pharisees and we think ourselves morally and superior, thinking we, if we were the apostles, of course, we look down on the apostles, we look down on Peter, James, and John, and we think ourselves superior. Them. If I had lived then, I would not. But now this is what they were saying here. If we had lived in the days of the prophets of old, we would not have been. And Jesus says, "Yes, you." We don't. We underestimate the, our hearts, our natural inclination, our outside of God. The old prophet, the old Puritan, I should say, whose name escapes me at the moment, said. In very bold language, we would kill God if we could get our hands on him. And you say, that's a very shocking thing to say. We would kill God if we got our hands. 
We don't realize the power that sin has in our hearts to reject God. And in fact, when God did come in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what did they do? Good, respectable people crucified him. And apart from God's grace, we would have been among the crowd saying, His blood be on us and on our children. We have that same murderous streak in us. It's not just about them, it's about you and I and what we're really like inside. We would have cried out. Why do you think you're any different than the crowd that was moved by the religious leaders? Saying, can he really look at him? He's got a crown of thorns in his head. He can't even save himself. Do you think he is the one? And they would be moving you, and you'd be convinced, and you would say, his blood be on us and on our children. Let him be crucified. We would. And the old Puritan was right. We would kill God if we put our hands on him. Because that is the heart of man to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And by doing so, you're suppressing God in your mind. You want to get rid of God. And that's what's going on in our society today. It's a rabid hatred of God. Not just out there, but many times in the church as well. But in all of this, friends, we end where we began. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, your children, uh, together as a hen gathers your brood under her wings, and you would not. Another shocking thing that we need to remember is that all the things that Jesus accuses these people of, he became guilty of those very things for us on the cross. Eve was made guilty of murder. He was made guilty of lovelessness and all the, the hypocrisy and pride that you and I are guilty of. God made him, he who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. When he describes the unrighteousness here that describes all of us by nature, we are now given as a gift that righteousness. That's where our hope comes from. If the Spirit of God has been speaking to you and saying, I'm no better than they, we need to remind ourselves that the very one who pointed these things out is the one who said, I will perform. I will gather. My death is of such virtue and power that I can call all who labor and are head praying and they can find rest for their souls. And that's where we need to find ourselves this morning. Not in a state of despair. Not after having taken a good honest look at ourselves to write ourselves off. But with these words of the mercy of Jesus saying to us that he in spite of all these things, will forgive, that he will receive, that he will heal, and that by doing that, when you come in that way, you don't care about outward appearance. You're so 
taken with the death of Jesus on the cross that when you now go to give, you don't, you don't sound a bell because you would be so disgusted with yourself. You'd say, why should I vie for the applause and the attention of men and, and with my pathetic gift? When the Son of God gave himself for me, that's where it becomes the law of God becomes internalized, friends, so that you don't ring a bell when you go to do something you don't want people to say, oh, aren't you a good person? You're satisfied in doing it for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. That's what, the, that's what Jesus is doing in the gospel. That's how the gospel calls us to say, how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. I do it instinctively now because I know that Jesus Die for a sinner such as me. This sinner! The sinner of Matthew 23. That's me in a mirror. But I can back into those doors rejoicing and glad that the Son of God paid that price. That he became all those horrible things that we read of. That he, he was guilty of those things. And now, we can say it's a song of surely goodness, not woe, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Blessed are you, blessed, blessed are you come in that name of Jesus. Help us, O oh Lord, as we go from this place. Father, we thank you that in your love you have given us your word to show us our what we are really like. But Lord, we have seen what Jesus is really like. We have seen your own heart as you cry out, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh Father, may each one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, hear that call to come under the shadow of your wings, to come under the redeeming love of our Savior, that we might be set free, and that, we, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. We, believe. we ask all this in the name of Jesus.